So this would be the time when all the kids who enjoy the binders for Children's Church would go get their binders, and where the rest of us are going to open up our Bibles to the letter to the Colossians. So make sure you follow along as we go through this series. And this morning is sermon number two. Last week's sermon was about eight and a half minutes long. This one will be a touch longer. Not much, but a touch longer. We've got about half an hour of time to play with, so this is going to be a little bit more fun. As we read this letter, I want to remind you again, it's intentional. It's intentional the reason why something like this would be so fitting for us to read as elders and then for us to want to teach to you. And over the next few months, Colossians is going to be taught by myself and a few of the other elders in the church. This church was growing And their faith was strong and they were loving one another and yet there was a lot of pressure in their world. Pressure to compromise the gospel with other forms of religious practice and non-religious practice. And here is this pastor, this missionary, trapped in chains writing to this church, trying to inspire them to remain true to the gospel. Trying to inspire them to continue in their faith, to not be discouraged by his chains and where they could end up one day, but also to not try to blur or blend the gospel with all the different religious practices they were seeing all around them. It's just Jesus. Whether you're sitting in a jail cell, it's just Jesus. Whether you're worshiping in the city of Colossae, just Jesus. Jesus is all you need. So if we turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, We're going to take a look at verse 9 of chapter 1. But if you'll remember last week, we got all the way to the end of 14. Verse 9 might best sum up the letter that we're reading together. So let's read this verse together and let's talk about how this sets up the rest of the letter that we're going to be studying. So verse 9 says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does that mean? Here's what it means. That is this pastor, Paul, and the younger pastor, Timothy, as they sit together and try to write this letter of encouragement to this church, this is what they want them to gain. This is what they're praying for that they will gain some sort of a spiritual wisdom and to lead them to understanding God's will. Might be the greatest question for all of us. What is God's will for your life and for my life? And why is it that it's going to take spiritual wisdom and understanding for us to find that? Well, I think it is because with earthly wisdom and understanding, you're going to miss God's will. So quickly, we take the things that God has created And we turn them around and aim them back at ourselves. We make ourselves and the things around us the objects of our worship when they were never meant to hold that place. And in a world like their world and in a world like ours today, it's going to take wisdom and understanding from God to see beyond all of those things and to know what truly is the only thing worthy of our worship. And it's Jesus. Last week, we talked about verses 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 that follow this. And they talk about living in a way that is worthy of the Lord. 
Because once you know the will of God, we are told to live it out, to walk in it. And that includes things like love and good deeds, the pursuit of understanding, endurance against hardship, and thankfulness. We talked about some of those already. And today, as we get ready in verse 15 to read until 20, Paul is going to bring all the focus back to the one and only thing worthy of all of our worship. The one and only thing that we need to remember to walk in the will of Jesus and not get pulled away into worshiping all these other things. Jesus. Jesus, above everything else, Jesus. To highlight this, I want to read a story from the Gospel of Matthew with you. So, if you want to read along with me, I'm going to put the words up on the screen. But if you want to follow along in your Bible in front of you or on your phone, we're going to chapter 12 of Matthew. It might be a little small, but let's read through it. And then I'm going to show you how I think this sets up the verses that we are going to study this morning. This is a story about Pharisees. God bless them. And they were walking with Jesus and his disciples. not Matthew 15, Matthew 12. There it is, I was going to say. Where's the story? This is the story of Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath. You might remember this story. This is the story where they eat the heads of grain on the Sabbath. Let's read it together and let's see how they turned the worship of something God had created into the object of their worship. So verse 1, Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Well, he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater then the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, he's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to quote Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is, what does it say? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. See, here's where we can get it backwards. The Pharisees had built their whole lives about bowing down to something. But what were they bowing down to? What was the object of their devotion? Was it God or was it his law? You see, they are willing to stand in the presence of Jesus and point out the fact that him and his disciples are not bowing down to the Sabbath law the way that they do. But this was their whole life. Their righteousness was found in their obedience. So without obedience, there was no righteousness at all. 
This became their object of worship. So the point when God would stand in their presence, when they had the one who spoke the law into existence in their presence, in their midst, they couldn't even acknowledge that it's him. They saw right through him to the law as the thing that they needed to bow down to. But why was the Sabbath made? Was the Sabbath made so that we would have something to bow down to? As if humans needed something to be obedient to, otherwise they had no chance at righteousness. That's not the case. The Sabbath was created for you and I to point our hearts and minds back where? Up. Up. In the same way that the Creator that Jesus, that the Father, that the Spirit made the whole world and on the seventh day paused and rested, God said, my children will do the same thing forever. They will take that day. They will stop. They will pause. That day was to bring life back to the children of Israel. It was to redirect their worship back to the one who made them. Every week, this rhythm was built into their life. Six days where the world was about the work that you do, but something happened on that seventh day. You stopped, and you remembered, and your heart and your mind were drawn up. It was to bless the people and give them life. Jesus is now, in the next story, going to go heal a man with a shriveled hand, and people are, again, going to be so upset because Jesus would restore someone's life to them on the Sabbath. He's not bowing down to the thing that they bow down to. Jesus says, if your animal on the farm fell into a hole, if it needed help, wouldn't you help it? You would bow down to the Sabbath law to the point where you wouldn't help your animal. You've got it so backwards. You've got it so backwards. If you read through Leviticus and you read through some of those early passages in the Old Testament you're going to see something amazing. All of the laws point up. They all do. You can't miss it if you start to look for it. The sacrifices that God brings in Leviticus, the sacrificial system, an offering for thanking God, an offering to celebrate peace, an offering of complete worship, an offering as God is removing your guilt, they're all things that point us up. To the food that you ate, it was to remind you of what God had done for you. To the clothes that you wore, you couldn't stitch different fabrics together because God is one. Like everything was supposed to constantly drive you vertical. This constant reminder. To the point where, where they put their tents, how they laid out the camp. Why would you do that? Because God was going to be at the center of his people. As we travel through the desert, when we stop for the night, and the kids start to ask you, Dad, why are we putting our tent here? You would say, our family sleeps on the west side, other families on the east, some on the north, and some on the south. But God remains at our center. It all points up. Because Jesus, because God is above all, and it was always supposed to point up. The Pharisees, though, had pointed it down. And the law of God was now about us and our righteousness and our obedience and scolding those who didn't comply. It became about us instead of him. 
Jesus, though, is above all of those things. So as we start to read in Colossians, in chapter 1, we're going to start with verse 15, and we're going to talk about it. Jesus is above all these things. And now remember the context. This is written by a pastor, by a missionary, who is sitting in jail right now, in chains. And you're going to see that in chapter 4. In chains. You think he's struggling with peace? You think he's struggling with being thankful, enduring hardship? How is he getting through all of this? How is this young church supposed to survive the pressure of the Roman Empire and the Greek system of gods that they worship and the Jews who keep bringing Sabbath rules and new new moon sacrifices, festivals and feasts? I keep bringing it to them and saying, you are not righteous unless you do these things. Jesus is good, but you need these other things. And Paul stops and he says, all you need is Jesus. Let's look at verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. We're going to go through it verse by verse. It's deep and it's wordy, but there's riches in the depth of these verses. Verse 15 says this, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. The image of God. Why does that matter? Because up to this point, we have been made in the image of God, but who is Jesus? He is the image. He is the revealing of Yahweh of the Old Testament, what we've always waited for. A chance to see him, right? Moses asked, could I have a chance to see you? And Paul is saying to this church, you have seen the image of God. Think about the beginning of Hebrews, if you read those first few verses. Complete reflection of God found in Jesus. You ever want to see God's compassion? You ever want to see his empathy in his heart? You ever wanted to see the way he would treat people and love people and forgive people and walk with people, Jesus. And he's the firstborn of all creation. Does that mean that in Genesis 1, verse 1, God was there making Jesus? That he was creating Jesus? No. What would have meant to this audience, though? What would have meant to Jewish people, especially to hear that Jesus was the firstborn of all of creation? Well, what does the firstborn come with? I'm the firstborn, I know this. Special blessings, right? That's what it comes No, it means you babysit the most. So what does it mean that you're the firstborn? There's a responsibility to being the firstborn. There's honor to being the firstborn. There's inheritance to being the firstborn. Everyone would have known that in their families, the firstborn came with a different level of position and authority. The firstborn was special. And they had to live this life. It was their calling. One day they'd be rewarded with extra inheritance, but there was responsibility to being the firstborn in your family. And Paul says, Jesus is that for all of us. All of creation, he is the authority. He is the one with the position. He is the heir of the inheritance. He is the one we'll follow. He is firstborn. And look in verse 16. 
He's also the creator. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is very different than how I remember Genesis chapter 1 taking place. Somehow in my mind, it was always God the Father who did all of that. Jesus didn't exist yet because he doesn't show up till later. And the Holy Spirit, I think, was there. Something about over the waters, but I don't know. It never really talks about the Spirit, does it? So you're taught to think that it's just the Father doing all this work. And then what does Paul say? Jesus, being God, is creating. He's God. Now, all of a sudden, let there be light. Jesus is speaking. Jesus is creating. And it was good. What if the one who is the image of God is there speaking into existence the creation of God? What if this Roman Empire is spoken into existence by Jesus? What if the chains that I'm wearing right now are spoken into existence by Jesus? What if everything, whether Satan's plan to try to take down the church, Jesus saw all of this coming? What would be the purpose, though? You ever wondered that? What's the point? Why are all of us here? What is the chief end of man? What if it's to glorify God? What if it's to enjoy him forever? What if we were made for him? For him. What if that's the purpose that you and I have on this earth? We were spoken into existence and it's to point vertical, just like the rest of creation, just like the laws in the Torah, just like the creation outside. I can see some of it through the door. What if all of us here have the purpose of pointing up? Not for you, not for me, but to point people to him and to live lives that live for him. If Paul can say that with confidence, that all of this is for him, then Paul can even sit in chains in a jail cell and say, this is for Jesus. It's all for him. Verse 17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's got the whole world in his hand. The whole world. What if, what if one day in Revelation, when the old heaven and the old earth pass away and a new heaven and a new earth come, it's because Jesus opens his hand and lets it go. What if he's holding all of this together? What if all creation is dependent on Jesus at every moment and at any moment he can remove it, change it, modify it? He sustains it. None of this happens without him because it's all resting on him. This is such a different and beautiful way to think about Jesus than maybe this church had ever considered. Because we already know that he's the firstborn. Jesus is pre-creation. He is before all things, but all things rely on him to remain together. This is very Old Testament language. But the Colossian church doesn't live in the Old Testament, do they? They live in the New Testament. 
So what about Jesus being the head of them going forward? Well, Paul says in the next few verses what we have to look forward to. Look in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Everything. So not only was he before the world was spoken into creation, but he is also leading us through the resurrection into the next life. Do you understand? As the church is being built together, he's the head of it. He's sustaining it. We are one body with him. He's going to take care of us and provide for us because we are attached to him in a way that we can't separate. Nothing in creation can separate us from Jesus because we are one with him. But he's also led the way into the next life for us so that when we get there, he was there first. He is the firstborn from the resurrection that all people who believe in him will go through and be with him one day. That in everything he might be first. Everything. Preeminent. He might be first. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Remind you of John chapter 1. The word became flesh and it dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. It's cool when you learn that word, that God was tabernacling in the midst of his people. He was dwelling there. And the fullness of God is dwelling within Jesus. Not a part of him, like in the Old Testament temple, or in the tent of meeting that they moved around throughout the desert. Not part of God, not a piece of his presence and glory, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in his son Jesus. And because the fullness of God rested in his son and dwelt in his son, he was able to be the sacrifice for our sins. And that's verse 20. Through him, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the end game. This is it. This is the point. Because all creation is broken. We know that from the very beginning, and it needs to be brought back together. Us with God. Creation with God. But what would it take to reconcile and reunite all of these things? It would take all of our sins and brokenness being completely covered. And it would take the death of the sacrificial lamb, the greatest lamb that had ever existed, to cover that amount of sin. Jesus is above all of these things because of what he's done for us to cover us and bring us home. Without him, none of this exists. But with Jesus covering us, nothing else matters. Salvation is dependent on one thing alone, our sin being covered by the blood of Jesus. But Darren, what about reading your Bible every day? No, that's not. That's not what it says. Our salvation is dependent on one thing alone, being covered by the blood of Jesus. Not how much you pray, not how much you fast, not how much you give in the offering box, the blood of Jesus. That's what our salvation is dependent on. Not how diligently we bow down to the Sabbath. Not how many heads of grain that we eat from the wheat field and what day of the week we eat the grain on. Our salvation is dependent on one thing, 
the peace that's been made by the blood on the cross. In our membership document, maybe you've never even noticed this, the very first line of our membership document isn't how many times a day you'll read your Bible or how often you will pray to be a good member of Bridgeway. Do you know what the very first thing in our document is? Jesus. Jesus. I am a believer in Jesus. He is the Son of God. He's the one who died for my sin, and he has risen again. Jesus. Because without what Jesus did, all the rest of this, you think it matters? You think it matters? No. Otherwise, it's just good moral living, and that's not what he's called us to. Without Jesus, the rest of this is just Pharisee life. I was trying to think this way this week about the way that Jesus gave us peace by his blood on the cross and what that would have meant to them. How Paul is able to sit in these chains and be completely at peace. How could he experience that, knowing that he could die, that all the rest of these Christians and all the rest of these churches could get arrested? How could he be at peace? the way that he speaks to this church about being at peace. But think about it this way. If you take in your mind and you go back to that first moment that they had Passover, imagine the peace that they felt being covered by the blood. Place yourself in those families' shoes for a minute. That as a mom or as a dad, you go up to your kids and you would explain to them Death is coming for every family, all of us. Death is coming. And the kids ask you, why would God do that? Why would God send death? He would say, because we have sinned, because we have fallen short, death is coming for all of our families. Just for the firstborn. And within each family, now there's a sense of panic. What are we going to do? There must be a way out. We can't just watch our brother or sister die. Dad, what do we do? And God says, the Father says that God has provided a way through this. Let me show you. And dad or mom might go outside and might go get the little lamb. Maybe they bring the lamb to the door. Maybe they even bring the lamb inside. And dad explains to them, look at this lamb. He's done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. He's beautiful. He's spotless. He's perfect. And tonight, he is going to die in our place so that we don't have to. And the kids are trying to wrap their minds around this. Doesn't make any sense. Why would something else have to die in our place? And dad says, there needs to be a life given for the sinful life that we live. There's a cost to this sin. Death is demanded to make us right. Can you imagine the kids coming up to the lamb? Maybe they pet it. Maybe the firstborn in the family comes up to the lamb. Maybe places a hand on it and says, thank you. Can you imagine that? Thank you for what you're about to do for our family. 
And dad takes a lamb outside and the lamb is killed. Mom begins to make supper. And dad does something they've never seen before. Dad takes this bowl and he takes the blood and he calls the kids. I don't know, I just imagine it. He takes them outside. He says, I want to show you something. And he begins to paint the house. The kids don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. Dad, what are you doing? And he takes the blood and he goes up one side of the door, across the top, down the other side. And he does it again. Dad, what are you doing? He says, tonight we are covered by the blood of this lamb and everyone in our house is safe tonight. Everyone is safe tonight. Because this lamb gave up its life, it will be above us. We will be beneath it. And we can experience rest and peace. Because death can't get through that blood tonight. But what if it does get through? It can't get through that blood. It's not powerful enough to get through. We will be safe beneath it. Because God has said so. And that night they go in and they have their supper and they go to sleep. And as pain and heartache and death is sweeping across the nation of Egypt, those kids are asleep in their beds and they don't have to be afraid because they have been covered and dad said, death can't get through. So as Paul is sitting and he's writing to this church and he's saying, I know I'm in chains. It looks like I could die at any minute but I am experiencing peace, we all do, in Jesus, because he shed his blood. I imagine that image, the whole church of Jesus being covered, the blood washed across the top of our homes, top of our lives. We are covered by the sacrifice of the perfect lamb of God, and death cannot get through. It's not powerful enough. It can't touch us. Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection. Death might slow us down for a minute, but it's not going to stop us. We are completely covered. And we can experience peace and rest because the Father has said so. Jesus is above all. And we don't have to be afraid. I want to pray and I want to thank Jesus for what he's done for us on the cross. And I want to let you know that if you've never trusted in Jesus for your salvation, if you have never confessed your sin before him and received him as your Lord and master, you can do that. You can do that right now. Whether here in this room, whether watching at home, you can do that right now. You can be covered by the blood of the lamb and experience peace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you and we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us and our sin. We thank you that we no longer have to be afraid because we are covered by the Lamb. Jesus, thank you that you fully fully dwelt by God, fully God, before all of this creation broke apart you are willing to be that sacrifice for us and for me. 
Father, I thank you that in my life you have given me great peace and I pray for our church family that you would give them great peace because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And if there's anyone, anyone who has not surrendered their life and received this gift of salvation, Father, would you hear their prayer? Would you forgive their sin? Would you cover them? Would they choose to rest in you for their salvation? And then now that they have this knowledge of your will, would they live their life for you? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us. You truly are above all. We love you and we thank you and we worship you. You are holy, 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 set apart from all things. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.